0: let's do this how are you what the fuckers what the fuck buddies what the fuck nicks what's happening it's me mark Marin. this is my podcast wtf big show today no time i was gonna read some emails but we're gonna have to hold on to them we're gonna have to wait it out how's it going man i'm sorry i jumped right in as if everything was okay that's crazy I mean, that was just crazy. For a minute there, I thought that everything was okay and everything was going to be okay. Didn't you feel that in my voice? When the, th- the parts of your brain that aren't engaged are the ones that are like, oh, I got to be at that. No, you don't. Oh, what time is that? It's not. Oh, when, when can we? We can't. So when, it- when all that goes away, all I got to do is this and, uh, and then figure out who I am. I said it to Cape Blanchett. I'll say it again. Pretty soon, we're all going to be who we are without those things, those external things. I mean, it's like all the social media platforms are becoming this like the death throes of of entertainment culture. People drowning in the great undertow of relevance. Wait, wait, wait. Help. Look at me, but I'm saying a thing. Hello, hello, hello. Is there anybody out there? Hey, look, man. Big show. Got a little one with Dan Savage. Got on the on the horn. No, I didn't get on the horn. I did not get on the horn. Uh, we got on, he did his side. We're on video, and then we both did it on, on our good mics. So that should sound good. Me talking to Dan Savage. I don't know if you know, Dan, he's been a guest on this show. I was just a guest on his briefly. We kind of switched it up. He's uh, He hosts the uh, Savage Love cast, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts or at, or at SavageLoveCast.com. And then our second guest is Eliza Hittman, who uh, has made several movies, a few features, a few shorts. She seemed to get upset with me that I obsessed about this one short as if it was some weird thing that wasn't meant to be seen. But her new film, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, is now available to rent on Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, and most video on-demand platforms. Great movie. She's a great filmmaker. I enjoy talking to her. So those things are happening. I will get you caught up with some shit, though, first. You know, Lynn's been sick, not with the COVID, with something else, some kind of strep thing. And I got to be honest with you, I am not what you would call a... I'm not... Okay, I think what I'm trying to say is I'm a reactive caretaker. Well, I'll fucking, uh, let's deal with it. Let's do it. I'll, well, I'll help out. What do you need? If it's messy, let's clean it up. If you need something to cook something for, you know, get you some medicine, whatever. I, I can do all that. And and I can be there. What I'm not is a nurturing caretaker. Like, I'll show up, I'll do this shit, but uh, you good? All right, good. Not even with my cats. I think it's some sort of weird inability to sort of open up that way because I feel like I'm just going to break down. You don't want to make someone else's sickness about you, you know? And obviously this is relevant right now. I mean, so many people are, are being utterly selfless and altruistic on the front lines of treating these COVID patients. And that's a fucking tough gig. God damn it. I mean, how do you not get cynical and jaded and fucking just obliterated? A a lot of them do existentially and emotionally. I'm just dealing with uh, my girlfriend at home who's not who's not doesn't have a a fatal thing. And, you know, I know enough to where like I got to show up. But if I get too open, the nurturing thing, I don't know if I've got that muscle because I don't know if my parents were more sort of like worrying, panicky, boundaryless, absorbing. You know, like if you had a problem, they'd make it their problem. Then we'd all sort of like just like feel that together. No separation of states. So I I got a pretty hard wall to that. I'm afraid if I open up, I'm just going to be like, you're sick. Then, no, what am I going to do? And then it's going to be I feel bad. You're sick, but am I going to get sick? And now we're both sick. And like, so I just got to be like, what do you need? Yeah, yeah, I'll make you soup. Yep, no problem. Soup. You want some water? You want to ta- here? Did you take your medicine? I can do that. But the uh, sort of like. Hey, it's going to be okay. You know, you're, you're doing good. You know, everything's great. Um, I mean, you know, you're getting through it, but, uh, it's going to be fine. Just get some rest. Nope. It's like, all right, you're, you're going to go to bed. I think you should get some sleep. Do you drink some fluids? Not like, why don't you have a, how about a little, you want a little water? No, I think you should drink a little, just drink some fucking water. You got to drink water. It's a different tone, but you know, the impulse is there and the act, the action is there. But she's getting better. Monkey is not great. But the same thing with monkey. I talk to everybody the same way when they're not feeling well. Hey monkey, are you dying? Are we dying now? Is that what's happening? Fucking cat, man. It gets what well, gets to the point of these old cats where every day you're like, you're gonna you uh, are you gonna wake up to a dead cat or are you gonna wake up to a cat that needs to be taken in to be to be killed? Or to uh, put down to be taken care of. <laughs> to, ugh. I'm actually pretty nurturing when I'm putting an animal down. I don't think I'm—I don't have to put it, Lynn, down. I don't think I can, and uh, and she's not that sick. But but like when I uh, when I put Fonda down, I held her and I was crying, and so I can I can you know I can really open my heart up for that, for the uh, euthanizing. But anything up to that, it's like, are you good? What do we need? But if it's sort of like, it's time, okay baby, okay baby. It's okay, it's okay. That I can show up for. Don't wanna be alone at that moment. If there's ever a time, you don't wanna feel alone. It's them and it's a fucking tragic horror show that so many people can't even have their family with them right now. But again, this is being said a lot and I don't think it can be said enough Grateful to the people who are selfless and taking on the job of taking care of humans who are in distress, who are in pain, who are in sickness, who are dying. Thank fucking God for those people and thank you to those people, all of you. The fact that there's anybody pushing back on that or being obnoxious to those people. He's a real fucking social cancer, man. Look, Dan Savage has been a, a radio guy, a podcast guy, Long been a long time. I think he might have been even uh, before us. I know he's on radio, I'm pretty sure. Whatever the case, you can hear him on uh, the, his show, The Savage Love Cast, which he hosts. And you can get that wherever you get your podcast or at savagelovecast.com. Uh, I'm actually on his show this week, and this is me and him talking. I wanted to had some questions about, you know, what he's hearing from people about sex behavior. This is me and Dan Savage. <laughs> Dan Savage, how are you? Long time no talk to. Uh, I'm really good. How are you? I'm uh, I'm okay. You know, I feel bad that I'm okay a little bit, but I am okay.
1: Yeah, I, I feel the same way. Um there's so many people out there right now who are in much worse shape, and I'm very privileged in that my job seems to be stumbling along for the moment. And right, I live yeah. in a big house, and so I can be with my partner, but also get the hell away from him while sheltering together. Exactly,
0: exactly. And then, you know, there's then you watch the news, and, and I don't know what what's going on. I mean, I think you're in Seattle, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. We were you know before new york stole the mantle from us we were the first the first american epicenter
0: yeah it was leveled you know out here it's not it, it's on a day-to-day basis very unclear to me what's happening in la uh, i have to check in with it we live relatively isolated lives here anyways
1: you know i was going to say that every time i'm in la like it's just one of those places you know it's a kind of a, a a desert of you know people who live in a desert you have you make a nice house for yourself and it's hard to get anywhere in la and so right. people tend to stay home.
0: That's right. And and it's like the you know the difference is that they've closed down my hiking trail. Now we have to wear masks outside. I limit my uh, visits to the grocery to, you know, once every couple weeks if if we can pull it off. I have my partner here as well, who you know, Lynn Shelton, uh has been staying at my house. And um she's got a place of her own too that we can go to across town, but but ultimately it's 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 a little it's still scary because you just don't know. But I I don't feel the bodies in the streets like New York did or maybe Seattle did in a way.
1: Well, I I think, you know, there's the bodies stacked up at the morgues uh, and on the refrigeration trucks that we have to think about. But increasingly, so many people out of work for such an extended period of time. And with our incompetent federal government bailing out shitty corporations instead of bailing out American citizens as they're doing in Canada, where the government isn't throwing money at corporations to buy back their goddamn stocks, they're actually paying people $2,000 a month to comply with stay-at-home orders, making it possible for people to comply with stay-at-home orders and pay their rent and pay their bills. People are increasingly desperate and you can feel the tension rising in Seattle. Well, you can I
0: can feel it here, too. And then, like, I have to figure out how do I talk about my own experience without being, you know, I I have to be empathetic and aware of what other people's lives look like, which is important. And also realize that how little, you know, we can do because of the government. They're not I believe they're not testing on purpose. So the number counts look less menacing. And I believe that they're encouraging this weird kind of. um Where's the protest for more tests? We got lunatics protesting here to go to the fucking beach. And it's crazy. The short sightedness.
1: It it is crazy. And people are, you know, the protesters who are a lot of MAGA idiots and Trump supporters are, you know, people who are upset about the lockdown and not everybody's upset about the lockdown uh, is a MAGA idiot. But the people at those protests definitely are long gun carrying gun humping MAGA idiots. But, you know, people's anger isn't being directed in the appropriate place, which is exactly they have this lockdown if the federal government had responded in time. If the federal government were ramping up testing to the extent that it should be ramped up, we could ease these restrictions as they've done in other places. Right. But, you know, it's just the the fucking Republicans. They don't think government works. They want to get elected so they can prove it by monkey wrenching government. If the well, government
2: they
0: did has they they we we live in a failed state they succeeded this is exactly, exactly. You know, a crisis and this is how the republican dream looks in a crisis this is mm-hmm. it this is this is this is hands on no government uh, functioning properly, uh, you know, disassembled, you know, cronies at the top positions and all the agencies, all the agencies bureaucratically crippled. And this is how it looks. This is the Republican dream we're living right now. Crazy. So I guess my question is for you, because i would gotten a few emails and I don't really do phone errors and I don't I'm not really on the pulse. Uh, but, you know, I got some a couple of emails about people addressing uh, you know, the possibilities and probably I'm, I'm sure the, the certainty of, of uh, an uptick in emotional abuse, domestic abuse, uh, strained relationships, both familial and uh, uh, and, and uh, personal with partners. And I, I imagine that you uh, hear about it because that's sort of part of what your show does.
1: Yeah, we're getting a lot of calls from people. And what uh, what do
0: you find, like, let's start with the, well, why don't we start with the horror show uh, of of the, the, the sad situations and move into something more uh, upbeat so we have a happy ending to the thing. Well, what are you hearing seeing, about abuse?
1: You're, you're seeing a lot of domestic violence calls all over mm. the country. The police are saying domestic violence reports and calls are way up. And, right. you know, one of the, things that condemns people to endure a relationship with a partner who's abusive is feeling like they have nowhere to go, feeling like there's no escape. And people are now trapped with their abusers even more than they may have been financially or psychologically trapped with their abusers in the past. Uh, One of the things we saw in cities which have relaxed restrictions, uh, in China in particular, after the restrictions were lifted, was a spike in filings for divorce, and I think we're oh, I thought you were going to say that. a
0: spike in uh, flower sales.
1: <laughs> no, a big <laughs> spike in uh, filings for divorce. I think we're going to see that here too. And it's not just you know abusive relationships uh, that that people have been enduring and and need to get out of, or may feel that they can't get out of. There's a lot of people who are in good enough relationships that are cracking under the strain of imposed constant togetherness right no um,
0: I, I imagine that's true that you know you you a lot of relationships kind of make do and, and you accept the the limitations of them and you make your compromises and you kind of get through life with uh, uh, some autonomy but i imagine what once that autonomy you know goes away completely you really got to get to know each other there's no hiding
1: Right. But the mistake that some people are making is assuming because they can't spend 24 hours a day with a person that they should get out of that relationship or that it's not a good relationship. There's a small body of research that shows that time apart from each other built into the relationship actually contributes to the health of a relationship and the long term stability. Right. Even up to people taking separate vacations, people having uh, separate circles of friends that they hang out with away from their partners. And suddenly, for a lot of people whose relationships are good and healthy, uh, in part because they're away from each other every day to go to work or maybe some weekends, I go camping, you stay home, you go out with the girls, whatever, all that's been taken from them and they're together 24 hours a day and they're sort of misinterpreting the fact that the relationship doesn't work under those conditions for the relationship doesn't work at all. And I need to get out of it as opposed to instead of identifying the forced togetherness as an aberration and unnatural, which is what it is. I'm afraid not just, you know, I'm for everybody getting out of shitty relationships they want to get out of and should get out of. I'm worried some people are going to exit relationships that aren't shitty, but that felt shitty during the lockdown.
0: Well, that's weird because, you know, in the sense that the same type of short sightedness around the particular situation uh, that we're in that I, I think people reacting you know negatively towards lockdown in general are experiencing is that there is a, a sense of childish entitlement uh, to the American mindset. And I think that to sort of uh, idealize your relationship without contextualizing the fact that you never are going to have to spend that much time with you, your partner again, ever, if we get through this. And it's, anom- it's, it's an anomaly. And, you know, the best thing you could do is suck it up and, and kind of you know, you know, realize that the shortcomings that are there between the two of you were always there and eventually they will be relieved again.
1: One of the tricks our minds plays on us as humans is whatever the condition we're in at any particular given moment. Yeah, we, we, we can succumb to this kind of bullshit despair that it will always be thus. You know, I think, is it. Uh, you know, I yeah. used to have, I had an infant once. I'm a parent. Uh, you you get into this like place of despair sometimes when you have an infant because it's such a grind and the despair is partly sort of fueled by, oh my God, this is the rest of my life. And it's not, the kid grows up uh, and this is not the rest of our lives being, you know, locked in, you know, up in our homes 24 hours a day with our uh, romantic partners or roommates or parents, whoever it is you're sheltering in place with. Or kids. Or kids. Yeah.
0: But I, I mean, I wonder like uh, Is there another side to this where people are learning good
1: things about
0: each other? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, hopefully, hopefully we're talking, you know, people don't call uh, advice podcasts or write to advice comments when things are going great. So I hear from people, you know, my, uh, my sample is always skewed. People don't write me just to say, Hey, I had me and my you know husband had a three way and it was awesome. People yeah. write me when they've had a three way and the sh- that shit exploded in their faces. So yeah. sometimes I think it, that's why people sometimes think, you know, never have a three way because, Oh my God, they always end in disaster. Well, those yeah, are now, the ones you hear about, right? Because the, the ones that where end. that
0: becomes a, a, a one-way for everybody at the end. Right.
1: If your parents had a three-way and didn't get divorced over it, you never heard about the three-way your parents had.
0: That's right. Right? And if it, they
1: had a three-way and they got divorced, you heard about it. <laughs> maybe.
0: Maybe. You heard about it years <laughs> later from the third one. Hopefully. Here's the other thing I wonder is like, what about all these people that are in relationships? They had things on the side. They had, uh, you know, all that kind of business going on. Someone at work, someone, you know, that, I mean, I wonder how, like, cause all that shit kind of comes to a grinding hole. I imagine it's a little harder to jerk off to porn, to sex with <laughs> whoever you're, you know, dealing with, uh, you know, uh, in secret. So all that, all those channels of acting out, you know, are shut down for a lot of people. And Not I, just and acting
1: I, out. I, I have this phrase I use all the time, um, do what you need to do to stay married and stay sane. Uh-huh. But sometimes in a you know, multi-decade long-ass term relationship, cheating is the least worst option. Uh-huh. There are people trapped in sexless relationships uh, where their partners, you know they're financially dependent on each other. Maybe they have kids with special needs. Just leaving isn't an option. Right. But sexlessness creates so much misery that it creates conflict in the relationship. There are times when you should cheat and stay. Right. right? And for some people who you know were doing what they needed to do to stay married and stay sane, they can't do that thing that helped them stay sane yeah. now and haven't right. been able to do for weeks or months. And maybe they have, you know, this is the unethical non-monogamous we're talking about. There are people out there in ethical non-monogamous relationships who have, you know, secondary partners, sometimes tertiary partners that they can't see right now and haven't seen and they miss them and their partners who are not the ones they live with feel like they weren't prioritized or couldn't be prioritized, and that's very sad. Ah. But there's also people who, you know, have the the piece on the side, the piece from work, that didn't just, you know, wasn't just about infidelity, wasn't just about being naughty, was maybe about keeping them sane. And some people are cracking yeah. under the strain of not having yeah. that sanity-inducing piece on the side.
0: I, well, I wonder what's, you know, I wonder what what the conversation is. Well, that's interesting. I wonder if this is going to be the thing that kind of buckles. Uh, some people's polyamorous lifestyle, you know, yeah. in in terms of the idea that you can sort of spread yourself emotionally out like that. Like, I, I think it's something like this where you're like, you, you start to realize wh- who's, pro- you know, what you prioritize, what the other partners you have prioritize, and I guess there's a certain amount of truth that's going to come out of this.
1: Right. I just got a letter from a a woman who has two boyfriends. She's poly, but both her boyfriends have wives, have primary partners that they live with. So both of her boyfriends are with their wives and she's got nobody, even though Mm. she's got two boyfriends. And she's starting to question whether this kind of polyamory was (laughs) right for her because she's nobody's primary. And if everybody is somebody's primary, then there's really not a lot of space for polyamorous webs of connection.
0: I think this—it's interesting, man. That's—I mean—that's an interesting uh, thing to kind of realize—is how these different types of relationships that have kind of evolved and 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 been embraced over the last decade or two, how they're going to survive something that is as emotionally taxing and as this, and 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 people who are in need of just human support who have, are involved in these complex kind of situations how how are they going to see them once they get out of this
1: i know people whose romantic relationships are entirely dependent on air travel And mm. they live in one country or on one continent and their partner lives in another and they fly back and forth to see each other frequently and suddenly frequently and suddenly they can't do that they can't spend one month there and, and the next month here or you know they can't take turns going to see each other because there's no getting on planes and flying to to Berlin
0: right now. Wow, yeah. What is the biggest complaint you're hearing? What is the theme of the calls?
1: Oh, my God. The the biggest complaint, see, you know, you're right to say that this has really probably put the most pressure on poly people because so the, the biggest sort of stream of calls have been from poly people. And I think a lot of people who are in poly relationships and open relationships have sort of been outed by this or suddenly have problems they didn't used to have right? because they were they were navigating their poly relationship successfully. Suddenly this thing slams into us. We're hit by this meteor and they can't, you know, their, poly, their relationships, you know, this web of in- interconnected romantic sort of ties, affiliations is not just strained, but, but snapped, broken. Of course. And, and because a lot of like people it, are hurting because of it.
0: Well, you know, there's 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 a sort of the the need situation emotionally is is much different when everything is okay and you can manage your shit. But, you know, when all of a sudden, you know, there's a terrifying uh, reality shift and, you know, you're you're unable to get to people and you're unable to connect that those deeper needs that look, I'm not going to pathologize anyone's way of life. But I mean, those deeper needs that aren't met. Uh, in those situations that are really kind of existential needs are being challenged.
1: We can still stay in touch, you know, if this had hit us 30 years ago, uh, you know, I had a long-distance relationship 30 years ago where we had to send each other letters via airmail to keep in touch, (laughs) and it could take a week. Uh, Now people can get online, they can email, they can FaceTime. I guess that's true, but still you're saying they still snap. They do still snap because it's the, you know, we're social animals and we need touch. And we need in, to some extent the, the physical presence of the people who are important to us, particularly if we have sexual relationships with them. For um, sure. There's only so much jacking off on Zoom that can uh, Ugh, make yeah, up for yeah. it.
0: To the timing of that's tricky. Uh, you know, to if you want it, things to happen at the same time, you've really got to pace yourself, you've uh, kind of focused, <laughs> exactly. it's a whole well, other sp-
1: same for in-person sex, really. Yeah, I guess like, but the simultaneous it's a whole, orgasm is kind of a but myth. The, the other, the
0: skill set is different because, you know, it, when you, you know, when you, when you're with somebody on a zoom call or, or however you're doing it, you know, you're watching them, you know, they're watching you and, and, it, you know, the, to make it sort of lock up and to maintain. So everybody happens at the same time. It's. It's it's a it's a deeper discipline, I think.
1: I think so. Although it is my considered opinion that it's easier to time your orgasms together if, if you're, you're jacking yeah. off online together than if you're actually in the same room with one another. That you can pace yourself more easily if you're not sort of juggling somebody else's bits at the same time as your own.
0: No, I get that. I I yeah I understand. Yeah, I I you're probably you're right. You're right. It, it's uh it's similar both sides, but it's it's about I think. The the thing about the online thing is that, you know, if you want it to end simultaneously, there is a bit of timing there. Getting somebody off when you're with them and then maybe finishing yourself, you know, that that's that's a whole different set of circumstances. But if you want it if you don't want to be the guy sitting there in a mess watching someone else finish, you know, there's a trick to it.
1: There is, there is. Timing is important in so many aspects of our lives, professionally and personally. But,
0: but okay, so but what about other stuff? Are you hearing anything about the intimacy becoming too kind of um, non-sexual because of things at hand that you know people are not able to sort of connect sexually in this situation?
1: Uh, Less so that than mismatched libido. There's a lot of people out there who respond to stress by getting horny, by needing the release. But there are more people who respond to stress by shutting down sexually. And there's some preliminary research done by the Kinsey Institute that shows that the more common reaction to the sort of mass stress and trauma of this moment uh, is people shutting down. And I'm hearing from a lot of people who are the partner who didn't shut down, the partner who is oh. reacting to this by <laughs> yeah. wanting to get off, wanting to be horny, wanting to touch, wanting intimacy, but they are unfortunately partnered with someone as they've just learned who responds to mass worldwide trauma by a, by their libido tanking. tanking. Right by a, shutting down a relationship down. that yeah a relationship that three months ago was sexually compatible is suddenly not if you add this stress sexually compatible and interesting it's a new so problem then- for many couples.
0: Right. So now they've got to lean on, you know, I still think that this has got to be revelatory on the emotional connection level.
1: You I, know, I think how people m- have to be patient. And, right. uh, you know, I'm literally writing a column right now where I'm talking to a woman about what I call uh, assisted masturbation. It's a little bit like mutual masturbation, but only one person's masturbating. Uh, you know, if you're not horny and your partner is, what, can, you know, if there's a way you can help your partner out. Right. You know, if they can, if you can sit on their face and they can rub one out, and they're a little happier for the human yeah. contact, and it doesn't make you feel used or traumatized. For God's sake, sit on their face. Is that the take? Take one for the team. Exactly, uh, yeah. with the expectation that they will take one for your team, perhaps at a later yeah. date. There may yeah. be a time you when either. you're horny and you can call in the favor.
0: Yeah, I think. Well, yeah, I mean that makes complete sense. You, you know, let me help you out. Yeah, mean, let me help
1: you out. Yeah. The, How the, the long is, is it g-
0: really going to take? That's the other thing I think that people forget that like, whatever you think sex time is, maybe, you know, if you're, you know, a real, like if you're a real duration freak, then, you know, there's, you're looking at an evening or, or like hours, but for most people, you you look, it's four minutes, dude. It's seven minutes. Really. <laughs> I've never
1: understood. I, I've, I literally get questions sometimes from people who are mad that I've never written about tantric sex practices. And I'm just, I'm not interested in me of all people not interested in sex. at lasts six hours. I got shit to do. Yeah. I got things to read. There's shows I want to watch. Yeah. I don't want to have sex for six hours.
0: Yeah. I, or I mean, six hour I, orgasm. Right. If you can both get, I mean, cause if you get deep and you get intense and you go at it, you know, and, and you're, you're, you're locked in, you know, I'd say inside of 15 minutes and that's, you know, that's a long, that, you know, that's inside of 15 minutes, you could exhaust yourselves beautifully uh, and and be done with it for the day.
1: Yes, it, there are also ways to make that fifteen minutes the culmination of like hours of erotic tension building. Uh, that's what the the swingers and the uh, you know BDSMers are particularly good at. Like often BDSM sex sure. is a lot of. You know, props and costumes and drama and play, but it still ends up with two people on the floor in the missionary position at the end for the last 15 sure, right, minutes. Yeah. So I'm those last cool. 15 minutes can look very similar to the vanilla person, but right. there was just a lot more sort of buildup.
0: I, I think that most people do that without labeling it, Dan. I, I think that, you know, non BDSM people are doing that through passive aggression and just harboring resentment. <laughs> I think that's just called life, what you just yeah. see, It's only without costumes, and they may not know it, but whatever pissed you off that morning and however you handled it throughout the day, if you weren't too abusive, uh, you know the, the sub is going to end up getting fucked.
1: It's just the BDSMers <laughs> are intentionally building up that stress. Right. Whereas right. the rest, other people are, uh, yeah. are just um, rolling. Living their bit.
0: cranky lives, <laughs> repressing their feelings, and resolving it sexually at the end of the day. Yep. Uh, well, this has been helpful. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, and you're doing okay?
1: Yeah, yeah, we're good. Um, we're hanging in there, and we're constantly, you know, when we're stressed out, reminding ourselves that there are people uh, in much worse straits than than we are. We're employed, and we have a roof over our heads, and we have plenty of food, uh, and we're trying to help out people that we can help out where we can. Um, but man, we need a revolution. And we need a new federal government.
0: Yeah, I, you know, it's one of those things where I, I feel the same as you, and I and I am trying to to do what I can where I can. Uh, and and in a way that I can from where I'm sitting. But it's one of these weird pauses where, like, as we were talking before, outside of the plague and the the hardships that people are going through to see – the natural environment to see bears coming back to Yosemite and porpoises showing up places that they weren't in years and people who live in cities seeing mountains for the first time that you would really hope that collectively there was some sort of, you, you know, global environmental wake up call as well as we come out of this. But I, I don't hold on to a lot of hope for that, sadly. And 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 I do hope that you're correct. I hope that that some governmental changes, that enough people have their anger focused in the right direction and were frightened enough because of the lack of security that was uh, provided by our government, a total mishandling and and, and uh, no support visible, uh, that they're able to see that clearly.
1: I, I hope so, but... The Republicans seem to always be better at... Tapping people's anger. Tapping into people's anger. And people are angry. And if anything they can do to stoke anger and then harness it, they are willing to do. There's no low they will not sink to in the pursuit of power. And, you know, I despair of the Democrats because all too often Democrats, you know, if Dems had power, more good would be done with it. But the will to power isn't there. And the constant badgering of Democrats... Uh, into the belief that what Democrats are in D.C. to do is to set a good example for Republicans Mm. as opposed to wrest power from Republicans and then do some good with it. Yeah, and
0: and enact policy that uh, is actually helpful and somehow make it uh, understandable to people that don't seem to really care or realize they're getting fucked.
1: Right, and make it simple. No more Rube Goldberg contraptions like Obamacare. Single-payer, make it simple so people can understand it and they'll be less afraid of it.
0: But. Yeah, you know, if yeah, if for some reason the, the the misunderstanding of the word socialism, you know, especially for people who are actually, you know, uh, getting checks, uh, benefits,
1: you know, benefiting you know. from like the, yeah, the socialism actually,
0: of light we do around the edges. Yeah, yeah, then they're the angry ones. But uh, yeah, hope we'll hope for the best. And 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 thanks for talking to me, man.
1: Hey, thanks for having me back on. It was a real pleasure.
0: That was uh, me and Dan Savage talking about the stuff, sex stuff. Eliza Hittman is, is my guest, and I love her work. I didn't know her work. I watched her most recent film, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Then I went and watched her other two features, which were spectacular, very raw, very in, uh, intimate movies, and very uh, kind of um, human, man. And I watched a short and I kind of got hung up on the short because I was trying to understand how she approached filmmaking but I think she got annoyed <laughs> that I kept bringing up the short film that she was like I don't want don't to put she's I did that a long time ago I was practicing I understand that but you know I thought there was something there anyways uh, her movies most of the, I, I watched all of them, but uh, the the new one never, rarely, sometimes, always is now available to rent on Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, and most video on demand platforms. Uh, as are her two other ones, and you can find the short, I believe, online. Anyways, I'm a big fan, and I think she's a uh, a great director. This is me talking to Eliza Hittman. <laughs> Just now, before this thing, I watched the short. Uh, Forever's going to start tonight. Uh-huh. So now I'm very up on you. I've watched. <laughs> I've watched most of the big work.
2: Thank you. Thank you yeah. for going back that far. I'm slightly embarrassed. Are you? <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. Why? Oh, well, I don't know. I think um, you know. I think short films, you know, are really you know, learning experiences and uh-huh. are in some ways kind of a, a chance to experiment. And, um, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel with them being out in the world necessarily,
0: but that's the way you kind of have to, they have to be out in the world. It's not like, you know, it's not like a musician's kind of a demo tape necessarily. It's more like a way you get attention in, yeah. a, in a broader sense from the business even though it is not obviously you know the end of the the, the quality of work you're going to do
2: yeah it's kind of like opening up a high school yearbook
0: oh my god yeah. yeah
2: a little bit and being like yeah here i am at this point in life but it's
0: but it's weird because you know speaking of high school it seems that most even going back that far that thematically you know what you're exploring has maintained pretty steady
2: teenagers teenage trauma yeah
0: you know it's well i mean what It seems that at least that film and the the first two, It Felt Like Love and Beach Rat are like familiar locations to you or something. I mean, like they all seem to be around the same kind of beach neighborhood. Where is that?
2: I think it's like kind of a a pocket of neighborhoods that all sort of overlap that are on the edge of. Like Coney Island?
0: Is it down by there?
2: Um, The Sheepshead Bay, Gravesend, uh, Beach Rats was Sheepshead Bay. Um, The term Beach Rats, it describes a kid that's from Garrett's Beach, and they live right on the water.
0: You grew up in that area?
2: I grew up in Flatbush, which is sort of in the middle of Brooklyn. Um, But 15 minutes from those neighborhoods.
0: How did you grow up?
2: Yeah, I would never say like the work that I make is autobiographical. It captures, you know, the essence of an experience and a community and a, you know, environment.
0: But what was your Brooklyn upbringing like?
2: My father is an academic and he teaches at Long Island University or retired. He taught at Long Island University. And he's from the Lower East Side. My father's kind of a a poor Lower East Side Jew who grew up in a tenement. Uh, my mother is from Borough Park, Brooklyn, which is another, you know, sort of Jewish neighborhood.
0: The the type of Jews, though, that, y- you know, not like, you know, we're going to make a buck no matter what. But they put the premium on on education and service.
2: Yeah, yeah. So that's
0: a That's one. That's a, There's, you know, the two kinds of Jews, the uh, kind of bullying business Jews. And then the sort I would
2: of- say my family um, is a mix of both. <laughs> yeah, we definitely have some criminals in the family. I mean, look at my last yeah. name. Yeah. And so it's a mix. Um, and, you, you know, but but both have equal status. Uh-huh.
0: So there was some uh, there was some uh, connected people some people that were a little shady in the hitman clan.
2: Yeah, definitely. My father's brother was a little bit of a character. Oh, that's how, that's how we
0: say it in the family, right? He's a character.
2: He's a character with an, <laughs> you know a, an interesting past. Uh-huh. Um but is yeah. He,
0: is he still around?
2: No, he's not. It's it's a long story. I don't
0: know how you were brought up specifically, but I mean Yeah, I was sort of surprised for some reason. Like when I was younger and I was in like early in college, I got a job at a deli in in like one of the last real Jewish delis in the Boston area. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, I I, I guess I had really um, kind of put it in my head, the Jewish exceptionalism thing. I I don't know why I never really thought, growing up in new mexico or or that you know jews were cops and boxers and and uh, mafia people and that like there was this this whole other world of jews that y- you know were you know definitely uh, borderline criminals and and and, and, I, and it's all in the history there but i remember there was a moment when i started meeting these characters where I was like I didn't I didn't know there were Jewish plumbers how is there a Jewish plumber but of course there were and it was it was so limited in my thinking to to not think that there were Jewish criminals considering the mob was half invented by Jews
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah we have some Lanskys in my family and we have some Hitmans. So. Really you
0: got some some of the Lanskys
2: No 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 but I mean they must be connected somewhere in the- Yeah yeah
0: but no <laughs> not no direct connection no. that you know of no. So, like, what what was your father's? Um, what did he teach?
2: My father taught anthropology.
0: Uh huh. And you, well, did you find that interesting?
2: I did. Uh, my father had a very focused career, and he um, studied a group of Native Americans in northern Nevada called the Paiutes. Huh. Um, and he wrote a few books. One book is called Wovoka, which is about this very um, kind of Jesus figure in Native American culture. Um, and I, I spent a lot of summers as a child on a reservation in Northern Nevada, watching him do field work and document a language. I actually made my first first short film on the reservation with the with the Paiutes, um, and. Yeah, that one is called Trickster, and that's kind of inspired by Native American mythology.
0: Was the Trickster a troubled teen?
2: It was a kid. It was <laughs> a little kid, you know, in Native American tradition. Trickster. Uh-huh. It's there are all these stories about Trickster and its his sibling Wolf, and right. one gets into trouble and one gets the other out of trouble, and uh-huh. it. I, I worked with two kids on this reservation, a boy and his sister, his real sister um, and it's a story about a little you know, trouble that this kid gets into and his older sister who covers it up for him.
0: But not too menacing?
2: Not too menacing. Not too menacing. Innocent.
0: I, I think that that's another interesting thing about the through line of all your work is that it's innocent trouble, a lot of it. You know, and and that there is sort of like I found myself like I didn't I didn't want to get to this part of my thinking yet on this but that there there's a menace that as a viewer you bring to these stories that you put on these stories that is is programmed into us but and and I'm curious about whether or not it's it's an intention that you have mm-hmm. in terms of expectation when teenagers are in risky situations but do you know what I'm talking about?
2: Yeah, I think that I, you know, in the script writing process, I'm very conscious and working to achieve a certain kind of tension Yeah, with the audience experience. And a lot of that tension is in, you know, the audience watching a young person putting themselves through very vulnerable situations. And it's about building the relationship between the audience and the character so that we as an audience, you know, kind of watch in horror.
0: Right. There's but the horror there is like it, it's multi leveled in, in all the movies that the features that you've done. It's there. And like the question that's sort of interesting because of the relief of the tension is usually like, oh, these kids aren't evil rapist murderers. They're just kind of kids. And but there is a, a tension in all of them where because of your expectation or because of uh, exploitive news or whatever you're bringing to it, you're like, oh, now she's going to get killed. Oh, now he's going to get killed. Oh, now they're going to get raped. And and I don't know that – I don't think that's – obviously, if you look at the numbers, the percentage of that happening is much less than the percentage of just somebody going through some natural kind of creepy rites of passage that they can recover from. Mm-hmm. As opposed to something violent and awful, mm-hmm. right? But but we bring to it this weird baggage of information, and there's a suspense element to it that I understand you're building tension. But do you want us to think they're going to get killed at every turn?
2: No, not necessarily. <laughs> um, I think that you know they're kind of ordinary characters, right? In sense, you know, going through these ordinary rites of passage, right. Like you're talking about. Um, and I think that the, their, their worlds, the worlds around them are constructed to be slightly unpredictable and unknowable. And that's, to me is very true to life.
0: Right. But you know what I'm talking about, that there is an expectation when uh-huh. a teenager walks into the woods with an older man mm-hmm. that, you know, something could go horribly wrong.
1: Mm-hmm. It it's, could.
0: A, <laughs> it's a, it's a sordid sort of a uh, curiosity. And I, and I realized watching your films that that, that is a sad bit of baggage that we take from exploitive journalistic culture Mm -hmm. that, you know, the assumption is always the worst in, in, in those situations that you can't take a walk in the woods anymore because there's more killers out there than there are bears, you know, like that kind of thing, (laughs) but it's not really true, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess that was something I learned about myself in watching your movies that you want to, you know, place this, this sort of, um, Because like the weird thing is in when the female characters in in some of the movies, you know, enter male situations where you're like, oh, this is where we're going to see the toxic, horrendous uh, nature of 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 teenage boys. But it's really like it always just comes to a limit where you're like, oh, they're they're not bad. They're just shitty.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's an accurate description of sort of what the the high risk you know situations that my characters knowingly put themselves into. Yeah, and are you know thrilling and scary at the same time.
0: So when you're out there in Nevada, like I grew up in the Southwest, like Mm -hmm. you're you're kind of dealing with your your father, the anthropologist. So like I didn't know that. I guess that's how anthropology works. That you know you get a job at whatever college it is and then you know you've got your your little lifetime of study <laughs> focused on one or two things is that how it works generally
2: That's how his career went and you know writing encyclopedias and squirreled away in a little study in our house Yeah with so many books that I wonder if he's ever read <laughs> Sure uh, Back to, you know, my Brooklyn family, I would say also, you know, my mom dedicated her whole life to um, running an outpatient mental health facility in Brooklyn that was part of a, you know, state hospital. Um, So I think that I had these two very strong influences growing up, you know, somebody who, you know, is, you know, bringing home these stories you know, of, you know, these, you know, really tragic patient lives. And um, and at the same time, you know, my father, who's kind of studying culture and communities. So psychology and culture and communities, I guess, you know, is the dialogue that I grew up in.
0: Do you feel did you feel yourself absorbing it at the time? Or is this something you're kind of looking back and putting together?
2: No, I was always very intrigued, you know, with my mother's work um and you know human behavior and why people do the fucked up things that they do. Yeah. You know, especially like in my own personal life like whenever I would have friends and go through like friend drama you know my mother was very much like a counselor to me I would say right
0: right sure why are
2: they acting like this why you know kind of get to the diagnosis
0: <laughs> sure and did you find that there was some sort of a uh, repetition of incidents that that were thematic for you or just standard fare
2: I think standard fare yeah. Yeah, I think standard friend drama fair. So you Definitely. never
0: had that trip of like you know like I always felt a little different than other people or that kind of thing.
2: I don't know. I don't know. Oh
0: really? You haven't <laughs> done you haven't done that type of self examination.
2: Um, I don't know if it went so deep the self examination with my mother, but oh right. But for uh, you
0: personally, like you know, your discomfort as a teenager must inform something. I mean, you. You, that's your oeuvre.
2: Yeah, yeah. I, it does, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a little embarrassing to discuss, perhaps.
0: Oh, really? Is it?
2: <laughs> I don't know.
0: All I know is that I was trying awfully hard. uh you know, more than anything else, more than particular trauma, that my need for connection and my need to be part of certain groups or to be friends with specific people was sort of all consuming to the point of, I think, of a type of desperation, which I think I, I see in, in, you know, a couple of your characters for sure, that their need to, you know, to connect despite what their own feelings might be was more important uh, than honoring their own feelings because they didn't know how to manage them.
2: Mm -hmm. I think, you know, kind of loneliness and desperation and inarticulateness.
0: But loneliness around people, which is the worst kind.
2: Yeah, I think those things are sort of, you know, drawn from my own
0: experience.
2: Not so much even always as a teenager, but as an adult. I think I definitely infuse those stories with, you know, Feelings that I have in that, you know, in the moment of writing them. Sure. It's not all a reflection.
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, I know. I, I, I don't I don't imagine that. I'm not trying to impose that. I tried Ooh. doing that with songwriters. I assume that all songwriters wrote songs about themselves. But it turns out, no, they make up things.
2: I think also like I think it's like a, a female filmmaker. There's uh-huh. always a little pressure Like especially when you're being interviewed, that work that people always assume work is like diaristic or you Uh know. um, Oh really? Whereas I don't know if people make those assumptions as much about male filmmakers. Yeah, women have to write about what they know, and it has to like be intimate and all of those things. And I think that the expectations, you know, men write about the world and women write. About, about their
0: feelings. Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder, I guess that's true. I guess maybe I would have to, you know, really think about that. But I think my direct um, experience with your work is is not so much in relation to other female directors, but just thematically teenagers mm-hmm. and, and the the sort of struggles that they have. You know, seemed to me and the fact that, you know, they were sort of set in places that that seemed were familiar to you. But uh, but uh, but I will definitely check myself in that department.
2: <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to make you self-conscious. It's just my own observation. That that's there's, probably true. There is an expectation for me in a way to reveal, you know.
0: Oh, really? More. Oh, yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. Well, that's interesting because, like, you know, I don't know that I would see you in the characters, but, y- y- you know. Uh, but but there is sort of, um, nah, I don't know. Uh, may I? I mean, I, it sounds like you're correct because you're obviously doing all these interviews. But now I'm just thinking about myself because I think that your films, more than anything, make me think about myself because you do leave a lot of space and you, you know to to kind of get to know these characters emotionally and in, in both as talking and just being. That my relationship with them in the movies becomes sort of a personal event somehow, which I think is good.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I think always my hope with making them is that you know they resonate with adult audiences, you know, regardless of where they are in life, you know, either as a reflection of their own youth or you know, reflection of them what they're feeling in that moment. Even I think that there's something about you know, honest films about young people that can be about more than just that specific, you know, adolescent or teenage turning point. Oh,
0: for sure. Because like most of us, you know, especially now, you know, that being in quarantine where daily routine and and any sort of daily sort of um, patterns are disrupted. So now, like, I find that... I'm sort of painfully left to myself. And then you start going through stuff. And then I'm starting to look at old pictures or think about my life. So watching your films in this situation puts me in direct sort of, uh, you know, confrontation with the the, the mildly or or more than mildly traumatic events of my teen years and sort of because they're defining things. So what was it about? So your mom was dealing with like real mentally ill, take people mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and she would like tell you about like the struggles they were having like schizophrenics and whatnot
2: yeah I think I was always very curious how can you not be yeah about the reality you know of dealing with people who have you know essentially lost their minds and been institutionalized and come back out into the real world and the work that she would do in helping them try and you know, find a nor- some sort of normalcy after Yeah. what had happened. And
0: were you ever afraid you were going to lose your mind?
2: Always. <laughs> <laughs> yeah? <laughs> sure. Isn't it the scariest thing that could happen? I don't know.
0: It's absolutely the scariest thing that could happen. And I used to, like, I actually when I was younger and using drugs, I had this weird rule for myself that if I ever lost my mind, I would stop doing drugs. Like you would know that. <laughs> um, so, Cause aren't you a little crazy to begin with, to be doing that kind of stuff, but.
2: And to be pushing it that far. that
0: Right. Well, that was the thing. It was this weird quote from Thomas McGuane that like it used to just, st- it stayed with me forever. And it was like, the mind is not a boomerang. If you throw it too far, it will not come back. And I was like, yeah, man. Got to be careful how far I throw it. <laughs> how do you when you think about losing your mind? How does that manifest itself? What's uh-huh. your concern?
2: I think yeah, maybe my fears are more about like just pent up anger, kind of.
0: Ooh, yeah, wow. like you're just gonna rage out. Yeah. Mm.
2: That would be that would be my version of losing
0: it. Do you feel like you're like a, like constantly simmering at some sort of low broil of anger?
2: Filmmaking is stressful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, where'd you go? What was the education process? So, you know, you come from this, like, very sort of um, intellectual and engaged family. Uh-huh. Did, did you know you wanted to be a filmmaker early on? Or No,
2: I didn't. I, I didn't um, didn't grow up in a house with a video camera. Um, I wasn't like a kid who was, you know, gravitating to this camera. I didn't self-document mm. you know none of it. Um, but I did grow up doing like theater. and I went to a big public arts high school in the middle of Brooklyn called Edward R. Murrow. Um, and I, you know, I was always interested in in storytelling, and I was always interested in um in theater and acting and You know, all of that. Yeah. Um, That's always been my life in a way. So Um, did you,
0: so you were an actress in college or in high school?
2: In high school. Yeah. Um, You know, I have, like, I guess I had like kind of one, one moment of realization as a little kid. Um, I was, I was very like dyslexic and I don't know if I was ever really diagnosed like what the issue was, but in elementary school and I hated reading. Yeah. Um, And one day during lunch, all of my friends had disappeared and they had joined this like storytelling group in the library. And I remember being like, oh no, like I, in order to see my friends during lunch, I have to go in the library, which was this, you know, intimidating place for me, which made me feel, you know, like, um, inadequate. So yeah. I went in the library and I joined this group to, um, you know, hang out with my friends. And we all had to pick a book and memorize it, and then we had to perform these stories in front of the school. And it was like a kind of a New York City competition. Um, and I, you know, I remember getting up on stage in front of the school and I told this little story, and everybody laughed and was totally engaged. And it was, like, a moment of, you know, just, like, positivity for one in a school setting. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I made everyone laugh. Nice. And that was, like, the moment for me, I think, (laughs) that it clicked, you know, that I could hold an audience's attention. Right. In, you know, telling a dramatic little story. And I kept winning all these little competitions in New York in
0: storytelling
2: um, in storytelling as a as a as an elementary school student um so yeah that that was the beginning and then i kind of always have found a way to do it in various at various points in my life like wherever i've been so i wasn't a filmmaker you know until my late 20s but i feel like i've kind of always been involved with a production
0: but like storytelling like cuz like i've i ask people Like, I don't know how old you are, but I mean, I ask people.
2: I'm 40.
0: Oh, 40. Uh Uh But obviously storytelling was a thing. Like, I don't remember the word storytelling or storytelling Mm -hmm. being a thing culturally. Yeah,
2: it's recent. I think it kind of picked up, but that's what it was called around New York City. And if you were from the city of a certain era, you know, you would know Right. What those competitions were.
0: Right. But it was like, it would have been like you were the first, it would have been around the time you were coming into it, I guess, that it really started to appear culturally. Mm-hmm. And do you like, and you would just tell, like, what's the structure? What did it become sort of a thing with you? Like the moth where, you know, you would construct and write and memorize different stories.
2: No, you would pick a book. It was about oh. reading and you know oh. literacy and so you tell
0: a story as you tell a story based on the book?
2: Yeah. Memorize the book.
0: Oh, oh okay. Yeah. And then in high school, you did, you did more regular acting or no?
2: Yeah, I did acting. Uh-huh. I went to this like incredible public arts high school where the vision for the high school, you know, was that there would be no sports teams and that <laughs> all of the public, you know, all of the funding would go into different arts programs. Genius. Yeah. Um, And there were some interesting alumni like Darren Aronofsky went there. Oh, yeah. Marissa Tomei.
0: Oh, yeah. um,
2: And a few others. So it had it had a little bit of a legacy.
0: Those are good ones.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Where'd you go to college at?
2: I went to college at Indiana University and I studied theater in Bloomington. Yeah.
0: You were in Bloomington for four years
2: i was in bloomington for four years
0: i've been there a lot
2: yeah it's a good place
0: yeah there's something kind of freaky about it i mean because i know there's like the deeply dug in sort of college town element mm-hmm. but the but the fringy kind of local element of it is yeah. fucking is intense it's a dark,
2: there's a darkness to it definitely there's a you know there's kkk on the outskirts of it yeah um, and, yeah, it doesn't have, you know, there's a lot of tension, class tension. and
0: Yeah, I feel it. Every time I'm there, I'm sort of like, what is really going on here? But you did uh, theater, all theater for four all years? All
2: theater, all theater. And I went to grad school at CalArts. For? For film.
0: That's when it started.
2: That's when it started.
0: Oh, uh, you just decided after... Four years of theater and high school storytelling. Yeah. That it was going to be movies. Was yeah. there a movie that made you do that?
2: I guess I, I met an MFA student from Columbia University, and he uh-huh. was working on his thesis film. And I remember seeing it and being like, why haven't I ever tried this? Right. You know, and why did I always assume, you know, that this was... Too complicated or too hard, and that I didn't have the skill set. To... Is that what
0: you assumed?
2: I assumed it seems, you know, it seems daunting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I can, I can understand that. Yeah. But were you like a film person?
2: I watched a lot of movies. I yeah. would never have called myself like a cinephile. No. No. I, you know, I grew up in New York, so I, I saw a lot of independent film and I had. Yeah. To a lot of independent film.
0: And then when did you make the first uh, short? I
2: made, so each year at CalArts, I made a short. Um, Forever's gonna start tonight is my thesis film. And then uh, a year or so after I graduated, um, I made It Felt Like Love, which is, you know, a micro, micro budget movie. Um, and I guess I shot that in. I want to say 2012, and I graduated in 2010. So oh. two years, yeah, two years after I graduated. So I you
0: really that. started, you know, focusing, and you were like, "This is this is going to be the life." Yes. So how did you get into this zone of
2: Brooklyn filmmaking? No naturalized
0: performances. Mm-hmm. It, you, you know, like the one thing that kind of stays true through the, all the films that I saw was you're able to you know pull very uh, kind of natural and you know deep performances out of these kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they actors?
2: Mix. They're all each film has kind of a mix of first time actors and people with experience. I think you know I think the the sort of performative style, you know, that's in my films, it's a combination, you know, between me sort of resisting the type of performance that, you know, I would have worked to achieve on the stage in a way, you know, if there's something, there's an intimacy that I'm trying to achieve that couldn't be achieved in theater. Yes. Um, And then I think also there's, you know, a lot you know, Cal Arts had a lot of influence over the type of filmmaker that I am.
0: Yeah. Like from, because of teachers or.
2: Yeah. Because of the sensibility of the program. Which um, was, you know, I think that there was, um, an emphasis on, you know, more kind of European auteur driven cinema and less of an emphasis on Hollywood filmmaking
0: for sure. Right.
2: Um, And, you know, those kind of styles of working. And when Um, you
0: were studying that stuff, like who was like making the biggest impression on you?
2: I don't know if there was any one, but, you know, an amalgam. Um, Obviously, you know, I was very interested in Brisson. Okay. Yeah. um, Robert Brisson and, um, you know, sort of the way in which he works. And he works a lot with kind of non-actors. He calls them actor models. You know, I think for me, you know, what was most exciting about leaving the black box was being out in the world and being able to work with real locations and, you know, being able to kind of move away from a certain kind of process that existed in the theater and being able to work with real people was really exciting. I think it was, you know, a way in a way to divorce myself from you know, this other creative process and identity.
0: Yeah. It's almost like, it's almost like the opposite of the black box. Yeah. the, The way you approach filmmaking.
2: I think part of the reason also, like I never stage in my films like a master shot or like a really perfect proscenium wide shot is because to me, that's theater.
0: Interesting. Yeah, because you're right up on everybody. Right. You can We don't need
2: to set the stage. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to show the production design, to show where the entrances and exits are, you know, and I'm trying to sort of break that language and be much closer and much more aligned with the character that I'm focusing on.
0: Right. And you can feel that like you don't even see whole rooms very often in your films.
2: <laughs> no, I don't really care. I always warn production designers about that. Like, you've seen my movie, you know we're yeah. not going to...
0: Yeah, just this corner, just the corner's good. Yeah. Over here by the chair.
2: But at the same time, of course, it's really important to me that the room feel credible, you know, and that we can be facing whatever way we need to be facing and, not, and, and that the actor can move in a fluid way and we're not... One side of the room isn't empty, and the other side is dressed. You know, right, we want, right. We want the space to feel three hundred and sixty.
0: I think that you definitely feel that, and this is the type of movie, obviously, that you didn't invent. But you know, to subvert or get rid of or, or work around or destroy uh, uh, Hollywood expectations is great because it makes you sort of like assess the humanity of the thing, right? So, what's the writing process? How do you work a scene? I mean, what do you stop yourself from doing outside of, you know, having a nice finale to a story?
2: Um, I think each one is a little different um, with it felt like love. Um, initially, I'd written a short film because mm-hmm. um, I didn't think I had, you know, the resources to make a feature. Um, and yeah. I had and I was kind of desperate to sort of make something. And the short film was all about this character, Lila, who is at a party and is really desperate to feel like somebody desires her. Right. Um, That was it, huh? That was it. It was all her desperate attempts at this one little party in the middle of the summer. And then when it didn't go the way that she planned or she had hoped, she goes home and she sort of experiments with the dog, (laughs) <laughs> um, and I liked the character and I thought it was funny and she amused me.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And yeah. so I wrote that script really, you know, in a very kind of fluid, like episodic way. Like I didn't know how to write a feature. I was like, I'm just going to keep putting this character into um, more and more situations. Um, when I got, when I was in high school, I did have, we did know this kid named Sammy who was desperate to have sex with 21 girls by his 21st birthday.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so I was like, oh, what if I put th- this character, Lila, you know, with this, you know, this vague idea of this kid we used to know, yeah. um, and have her pursue him and what would happen. And that was sort of what I asked myself. And I just wrote a lot of like episodes with her knowing, you know, that I was leading, you know, to to a you know a darker, unfulfilling attempt.
0: Well that yeah, I I, I really like that film, but it seems like you you kind of I, I'd imagine that you're pretty proud of that. You don't look at that like the same as you look at your shorts, right?
2: Yeah, that I, that movie um, was such a, you know, kind of personal triumph for me because we really made it with very little. Mm. And, you know, at the time when I, you know, had shot the film, like all these micro-budget movies were coming out um, that focused on a certain narrative. You know, people who post-liberal arts school, who moved back to New York and are trying to define themselves you know, in, you know, in a certain world, in a certain, you know, with a certain background. Um, and I was just really thinking about how can I take that micro budget model, um, but do something that feels more true to me and, you know, the way that I work. And um, yeah, you know, we, we really, we, we made it with like six people and we rounded up a bunch of high school students and, um you know, there was no SAG and there were no unions, and it was just my DP and a camera and me and a sound person, and it was very liberating. So, working uh, so
0: those were all non actors for the most part, or?
2: Well, Gina Persanti, who um, is the lead, she had done other student films. Uh huh. She hadn't, um, she hadn't had, like, a lead in a feature before. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody else largely were first-time actors. I cast some kids from my high school, which was fun. I went back to the theater department and said, you know, can I audition all of the the kids that are there? And they said, sure. And <laughs> I the information. And, um, and I also worked with a casting director. I, I tend to, like, have very long casting processes and try and see as many people as i can i'm not um i'm very open-minded about casting when the process begins and through seeing people i begin to sort of hone in on what will be most successful and then i also cast some kids from a park i did some street casting on my own
0: oh yeah for that first one
2: yeah that's how i had that's where the sammy's friends came from
0: oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. They were they were good. Um, And like what it it seems like all the in all the films, there's sometimes it's revealed earlier than later. But there's this kind of uh, death hanging over these characters. And I don't know what happened in the newest one, Mm -hmm. but there's absence there Mm -hmm. of of uh, of at least a real parent.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What is that theme for you? Where does that come from?
2: Um, I grew up in a house with a lot of illness, oh. you know, and, and, um, that was sort of, you know, part of my experience. Like um, what?
0: Someone was sick in the house?
2: Yeah. My, my mother had three rounds of, you know, breast cancer, two uh. rounds of breast cancer, one round of like uterine, ovarian oh. cancer, um, and was a bit, you know, absent. And I had, you know, my father was very... You know, much consumed with her illness, yeah, um, and they were, you know, not absent in a way, but obviously, you know, yeah, yeah, definitely paralyzed takes... by, you know, fear and, you know,
0: impending, yeah. mortality, yeah, and yeah. so emotionally, it was a uh, taxing, yeah. Oh, well, that makes sense.
2: I I think it's also like you know part part of the coming of age tropes that I like to play with and experiment with and subvert. Yeah. You know, the yeah. sort of parental figure who's died or dying is a common one in coming of age films. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's in every Disney movie and.
0: Oh, I, I don't know if I realize that. No kidding. So, and and how do they usually handle it?
2: it? Usually, it's the crisis that starts the story. Mm. You know, like in, you know, Finding Nemo.
0: Oh, right, right. Just
2: you know, something that's I think you know part of the way we think about stories about youth.
0: Yeah, that's and, been
2: informed in me.
0: So the newest movie is it was all set to be, what, what happened with that movie? Because I know this was one of those quarantine situations where everything oh, shut down.
2: Yeah, you know, we premiered at Sundance um, and then we went to Berlin and then we were about to open in theaters when um, people began to be told to shelter in place. And we opened in the Angelica and the Arclight. And then three days later, the theaters closed. Oh. And, um, you know, Now looking...
0: millions of more people can see it if they want to.
2: I Well, I hope so. Mm. I hope so. We'll see.
0: Well, it's called Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. And it's a different landscape for you. We're yeah. in Pennsylvania, I think.
2: Yeah. I I was trying deliberately to get out of New York. <laughs> get
0: out of uh, the Brooklyn Beach area.
2: Yeah. it's And it's not a summer movie. It's a winter movie. It was like, I have to do something different. The town that we shot in is called Shimokin, and it's part of like a coal mine, a cluster of coal towns. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't really get to spend the time there because, you know, so much of the story is about them leaving and going to New York, but it is a very dark little coal town that's cut off from the rest of the state, you know, in you know, what we call like Pensatucky, the Pensatucky Mm -hmm. region. Hmm. Um, But yeah, I, I chose the town and, um, you know, I went to pregnancy care centers in that town and sort of researched, you know, what what it would be like to go through the counseling process as a pregnant teenager. The in Christian
0: that- counseling process. Yeah, yeah. And that's all that was available in some of those places.
2: Yeah. There's one in every town.
0: That type of uh, the, a clinic that presents itself as um A place where you can go to resolve whatever issue, but it's pretty specifically uh, geared towards you keeping the baby for Jesus.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's very, you know, anti abortion um, and not subtly at all, you know, Christian and run by volunteer women who have no medical licenses, but, you know, seem to think they should be practicing medicine right um and you know unfortunately federally subsidized
0: right and i think that the way you handle all that you know because you know this is a movie about a a teenage girl who has to to make a choice about you know her pregnancy is is like it it doesn't ever ring like you're hammering something over the head or trying to make a statement it just is what it is you know, and then the, through resourcefulness and through the support of her friend, or is it her cousin? Both. Yeah, yeah. You know, they kind of plan this journey to the big city. You know, whatever the struggle is, whatever you're suggesting, however, you know, that the way you handled why she was pregnant and left that a little bit open was like that must have been a pretty big story decision
2: you know it was one it was a decision i made before i started writing it almost
0: that you weren't Um, you weren't going to really give you know uh you weren't going to hang it on anybody
2: no um i guess like you know i i was doing all this research on what you know people insensitively call like abortion tourism and i really thought that the journey that all these women take all over the country and all over the world it's so heroic You know, and requires so much persistence, Mm. and of course, there's so many obstacles along the way. And I just, I knew that it was, you know, a woman's story. Yeah. And that she was alone with the burden of what she was dealing with, because I think so many women are, and we pa- we place the onus and responsibility on the woman. So why why is the, why is the man of any relevance? Right. In a way, in the movie that I'm telling. Um, right, but was- but also like even just
0: the hint of suggestiveness around yeah. the possibilities. Like I don't want to spoil anything for anybody. Is like.
2: To implicate everybody around her in a yeah,
0: way. Right, right. But, you, you know, so that, you know, that is sort of beautiful. And the, it's sort of where the title comes from is in, you know, a series of questions that she's asked at a, at a at a real clinic. Yeah. Yeah. But like it's one of those things where these two kind of country girls in a way or or Pennsylvania girls young, they go to Port of Port Authority you know, I you know I everyone who've been to New York or who's spent any time there knows that fucking place. And you know, and right away, you're like, oh God, this is gonna be trouble. So like there's that menace again, you know, and it and it's it just sort of hangs there. And then the one kid they meet is kind of doofy, but you know he's a decent hearted kid, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like you know, you but there's still that thing where you're waiting, like, this is where it's gonna get bad. but it just it just it rides that line, you know. But I think the, like the way you resolve tension, like like right after that happens the second day, you know, they're just eating at that Chinese bakery a- again and they're laughing and they're teenage girls again. And that's that. And then it, it goes behind you and then they're on the bus. I mean, and that's the way that really plays out a lot of times, isn't it?
2: Yeah. For me, I thought of it like kind of an everyday hero's journey.
0: Yeah, right. It's, yeah, but there was- there's something about the elasticity of
2: after the adventure, you kind of have to go home,
0: right? Right, and but you also but, have to have a couple of laughs with your friend and eat. Mm-hmm, like yeah. you just, there's a return to whatever that normal is, and there's that. I, I don't know why I want to say elasticity to or to, to the teenage spirit because there's so much they don't know.
2: Yeah, when and we that, talked about that scene, um, it's one of the few scenes in the film where they improvised. Actually, you know, Uh whatever they say about the sweets, Uh like, you know, that it's greasy, but good. And it's one of the few scenes that it kind of let them be themselves. And it was because I wanted the feeling like you're saying that their kind of daily life was coming back after this ordeal. Right.
0: Right. Yeah, I just thought it was so well played by uh, by by everybody, by both them and the kid too. The the boy, um, I thought he was good. Where'd you find these people?
2: All over. Um, the the boy, he's a, he's an actor. His name is Theodore Pellerin, and mm-hmm. he's from actually Montreal. Um, and he's been in a lot of incredible things, and will be in a lot more incredible things. Uh-huh. And um, the lead of the film is this you know, young, aspiring musician named Sydney Flanagan. And I met her producing another movie um, in Western New York, like when she was 14 mm. and it, the film that we were working on, I was producing it. It was called Buffalo Juggalos. And it was a kind of performative piece with juggalos,
1: a performative
2: oh. film with juggalos. And Sydney was dating a juggalo. So we added her on Facebook thinking she might want to be in the movie at some point. Uh-huh. This other film. Um, but she kept kind of turning up in my Facebook feed because she was posting all these videos of herself playing music. And when we were casting the film, never rarely, I was like, we have to ask this girl to audition because yeah. I think she's interesting. Oh, and that's um, how that went. Yeah. So she had never done a film before. Um, and talia who plays her friend cousin is an aspiring actress and this is her first film but she had done broadway actually she's huh. a broadway kid and she had done matilda
0: oh okay she's great mm-hmm. yeah they were great yeah. well i i really uh, appreciate the work and i really uh got a lot out of watching the movies and also like on, okay let's just like help me out in terms of intentions okay so in the just in the short, like uh-huh. like this is a simple simple idea of film language, and I you know and I don't know how necessarily to put together because you know you are, uh, I think a poetic filmmaker. You know, there's a, a, a lyrical element to it, and there's a emotional flow to it, and it 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 does operate outside of any kind of manipulative narrative or or happy ending or 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 regular closure, right? So. Like just in turn in the just in the simplicity of that first short, forever is going to start tonight. You made a choice to have her bring. I can spoil that one. It's you know it's old, but you made a choice for her to take those cats and put them on the beach. Mm-hmm. Like that's the final thing. Mm-hmm. Like after this night of of a regular sort of weird drunky sexy teen night, you know, and you set this up at the beginning that the landlady only wants her dad to have two cats and he's got a litter of kittens up there. But the last thing she does is just go abandon these cats. Like, (laughs) what did that mean to you? Why did you do that?
2: Well, you know, I, I, you know, I felt like it was, you know, her sort of taking responsibility for him in a situation where he was helpless. Mm. Um, And, you know, when I was thinking about the script and about to shoot it I was like, well, she could either dump them on the street, you know, or she could bring them back to this place.
0: And there's also that element of it's, it's sort of heart hardening
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's um, a tough transformative moment for this young woman. Her dad um, was
0: incapacitated. I don't know if I picked
2: that up. He was, I don't want to talk about this short. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um, I get embarrassed talking about it and thinking about it. Um, Yeah, he's old, you you know, he's helpless and, um, you know.
0: Okay, well, I'm sorry. I don't mean to make you talk about it. I just, because I I thought it was a very pure kind of like, you know, that that there's, you make decisions like that are provocative, Mm -hmm. you know, scene to scene decisions, you know, that are unique in that they don't, you don't know how the story is going to go or, or what is important about the story, because like, if you really to pitch out the stories of these movies, you know, they would do a disservice to the film mm-hmm. itself. Right. Yeah. So I just thought it was a way to isolate one of those decisions that you made creatively that I think you still make uh, that that affected me in a certain way because I like cats. So that's all.
2: I think, yeah, I think it's, you know, an emotional decision, a visual decision. Yeah. Yeah. um, You know, you know, it was about her reflecting on this sort of moment and this night. Um, Yeah.
0: Because I think they happen throughout your films, don't you? (laughs) I mean, I think that's the way you kind of think like and I don't know if it's, you know, it's obviously your creative process, but it's it's unique in that it it does seem to come from left field, but it makes complete sense. You know what I mean?
2: I hope. Oh, I hope
0: so. <laughs> no, I, I, I love it. Um, but it was great talking to you. I hope I didn't make you uncomfortable in any no, way. No,
2: not at all. Thank you for doing this.
0: That was Eliza Hittman. The movie Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always is now available. It's her newest. Uh, now available to rent on Amazon Prime Video, Apple TV, and most video on-demand platforms. Uh, I would go watch all her other ones, including the short, despite what she thinks of it. And now I'm going to play my, uh, my new old guitar for you. I'm getting the hang of it. We're building a bond. Me and the 1960 Les Paul Jr. I'm starting to feel what it's all about. We're understanding each other. Here, listen.